Hello, welcome. My name is Micah Utrix. And I am R.L. Stevens. And this is the first episode of Stockton to Malone, a new podcast from Jacobin Magazine. We're coming to you from Chicago, Illinois. And later on in this episode, you are going to hear our interview with Judy Whitner, who tells her story of having an illegal abortion on her kitchen table in 1969 before Roe v. Wade. And we are launching this thing, a show that is going to be coming to you regularly, talking about all kinds of stuff, doing uh, interviews with folks on the left, folks who aren't on the left, covering topics ranging from what, labor to feminism. Uh, Hold on, hold on, hold on. Donald Trump's Twitter account. That we. Uh, Then also Jaden Smith's Twitter account. We promise to bring you that hard-hitting Marxist analysis of Jaden Smith that you need. Everybody's been bringing you that idealism in their analysis in of Jaden Smith. Takes? We are bringing no. you some materialist analysis of Jaden Smith. Of Jaden Smith. Have you seen this new video? Okay. All right. Anyway, uh, we're also going to talk with my mom. I think that's the whole reason you wanted to start this podcast. Is just so you can interview your mom. Yeah, I, I, I said, "Yo, moms, I'm gonna make you a star." <laughs> The whole left is going to know your name. <laughs> so that's a little bit about what we're going to be bringing you on the show. Yeah, we want to feel alive in this. Because that's really what Marxism is about. You know, It's about spontaneous self-expression, about humanity, the feelings, the joy. It's about wrestling with the political problems to be human. I thought we were just going to read out of Capital Volume 1 for like two hours for every episode. I think I signed up for the wrong podcast. <laughs> <laughs> No, also we know that you would not be able to do a boring podcast. You you want it, you want it to be lit. Yeah, uh, in one of the outtakes I sang Thug Loving. We, we had to cut that. <laughs> that just tells you a little bit about what the editors are working with behind the scenes. So it's funny that we're here now uh, recording a podcast together because a podcast first brought us together. We were, uh, we were first connected through me listening to you on uh, Doug Henwood's radio show. Shout out to Dougie Hen, a.k.a. Doug Henny. And you were talking about some article that you wrote. And I don't remember really anything you talked about. All I really remember is that you essentially engaged in a filibuster on Doug's show. <laughs> it was, your boy was in a trance. <laughs> like, Doug asked me like two questions. Yeah, that's true. I remember that. The thing was like 45 minutes long. And I just straight up talked. Straight. Pacing. So I live with my mom at this time. Uh, I was pacing back and forth in the kitchen, just ranting for 45 minutes. This brother asked me two questions. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) And I don't mean like two questions made it onto the air. I mean... Homeboy asked me two questions total. One in the beginning, like, hello, how are you? (laughs) And one at the end, do you have anything else to say? (laughs) That is pretty much, I mean, Trent, I went, the way I try to rationalize it is that it's kind of like, you know, when Kobe would go in the zone and was hitting like 81, that's, that's what it was like. That's what you, that's what you witnessed. Or the Kanye rants. The, the old ones, not the new ones when he had to go to the hospital. <laughs> you know, the old ones. So we're going to be talking about all kinds of stuff, and you should be here to listen to it. So subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, tell your friends, get ready. 
So we're now in the era of President Donald J. Trump, and we know that he's done all kinds of stuff in the first few weeks of his presidency, but high up on the list is a rollback of abortion rights and abortion access. He you know, emphasized during the campaign and after that he is this pro-life president and that uh, he believes in, in rolling back abortion rights and abortion access, but also uh, his party has total control of the House and the Senate, and there's an enormous amount of GOP control at the state level all around the country. And so uh, very soon we're likely to see some serious attacks on abortion rights and abortion access. We wanted to cover not only abortion, but abortion access at an intimate level, at a practical level, because of the situation that we find ourselves in, in which it could be overturned, Roe v. Wade, and go back to the states in which it would be illegal in some and possibly legal in others. So what would it look like to struggle for abortion on on practical terms? I first discovered this issue, the the Jane Collective and underground illicit illegal abortion networks, through a friend, Alice Rowe, who uh, lives in Ireland, where they're also engaged in real struggles for abortion access. And I, I... uh, Alice liberated, let's say, <laughs> a PDF article about the Jane Collective and about underground abortions here in Chicago and put it online in, I believe, 2013. And that's when I first started thinking about it. And it opened my mind to this idea of access. Because before that, I had only ta- thought about it in terms of rights. And so to me, abortion was something that we needed to vote for Democrats in order to have somebody on the Supreme Court that would protect abortion rights. But when I read this article about the Jane Collective, I started thinking about access. And then I started digging into it more and understanding that, okay, right after Roe v. Wade came out, you have the Hyde Amendment, which guts federal funding. You have a bunch of restrictions uh, that make it really onerous on, on people to get abortions. It makes it difficult for hospitals to administer them. Like There was massive rollbacks happening, as well as a, a, a well-organized, well-oiled, well-funded, and dangerous violent movement to push back against abortion, not only access, but just the entire concept of it. And so what would that mean in practical terms? How do we begin to fight against that? Not only by um, thinking about it as far as rights, but thinking about it as far as in terms of access, opening up a new front of struggle, the private sphere, in which we have to view that private sphere, view these these, these relationships, these, these things that we consider to be taboo, things that we consider to be like an, an apolitical, when we open that up and see that it has uh, political implications and see it as a part of political struggle, there are all these histories that exist of women like Judy who uh, made real decisions to fight against the patriarchy in very practical terms. Yeah, so the interview is with Judy Whitner, who is Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Loyola University Chicago. And she was actually my professor for several years when I was an undergrad. She's now 77. And I remembered her telling me when I was in school that she had had an abortion through the Jane Collective um, in the pre-Roe v. Wade era. Uh, so she had her abortion in 1969. And as you'll hear in the interview, she describes how she had already been a part of the women's movement in Chicago, uh, but 
then found herself needing an abortion and ended up getting one, uh, one that was, you know, outside of any hospital or doctor's office or wherever. She had the abortion on her uh, kitchen table, actually, which is where we conducted the interview was uh, in her kitchen. Hallowed ground. Yeah. And so uh, this was 1969. It was before Roe v. Wade. Uh, and so who knows if, if this if abortion ends up going back to the states as trump has said uh then this kind of stories of those women who got abortions through the jane collective might have a, a new residence in uh the, the the trump era so there's a lot to discuss about this interview it's pretty intense and pretty personal interview um and we'll uh, talk a little bit about that afterwards but uh for now let's go to uh, our interview with judy whitner So we're here in Judy Whitner's kitchen uh, discussing her experiences with the Jane Collective and with abortion before Roe versus Wade. Judy, can you describe first, before you get into Jane, you have told me in the past about your uh, sort of personal transformation through the, uh, the women's movement mm-hmm. in Chicago. Right? How, mm-hmm. did you, uh, how did you come across the women's movement? How did you get involved? Well, let's see, that's, um, well, I was, uh, I grew up as a a pretty conventional middle-class child in Boston, and, but my parents were, they weren't, they didn't join the party, but they were left, and they worked with the party. They're fellow travelers? Fellow travelers, right? And so I... And back with the party, you mean... The Communist Party. The Communist Party, right. That was the choice you had in those days was either to join the party or be a fellow traveler or be straight, I guess, whatever they called it. And what year would this be? Um, Well, I was born in 1939, and this was 50s into the 60s, before the movements of the 60s really started up. And so... uh, I had a um, I had a privileged vantage point because of my parents' politics, because otherwise there was no politics in those years, and um, and always I was sympathetic to that as well. So I was always looking for something to do, and the women's movement was, I think, for me the first real political opportunity that came up in my in my uh, surroundings. So that was that was a, an exciting moment and um, yeah the rest the, the other political there were a lot of groups around but they were really kind of you know kind of weird. Can you name some? You mean left groups? Yeah. Well, I don't <laughs> I don't want to name any left groups as being weird. I feel like we'll get hateful no, tweets. I'm, I'm thinking about these strange... I can't think of the names of any of them. But anyway, they weren't very interesting. They weren't. They didn't grab you. You don't want them. And the women's movement did grab you? Well, that was partly personal, of course. I was married at the time. I had lived a very conventional life. And... Um, 
I was unhappy. You married at a pretty young age, right? 19. 19. I would think that qualifies. And that was in what, late 50s, early 60s? I was 19 in uh, 1959. Okay. And there wasn't a lot of options at the time that I knew of. There were people who were becoming political, but the women's movement was a, a mass movement. It became a mass movement. So it was available, it was there. I knew lots of people, and so that was, that was easier for me. How did it change you? It allowed me to live my convictions in a way that I hadn't been able to before. So, you know, I always, I, you know, my parents were communist sympathizers. I had heard this stuff at home all the time. They used to get furious with me if I said anything. I couldn't talk about it. About them being communist sympathizers? Yeah, right. This is the 50s, you know. And, well, it was understandable um, yeah, <laughs> why they would be nervous. Right. And uh, it was very exciting to see this kind of thing emerge again and to get involved in some way or another. Although I wasn't a very brave person. I didn't... Why do you say that? Well, I was cautious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't want to. Uh, I, I I didn't want to be a pariah. I didn't want people to think of me as an oddball. It's hard to get back to that feeling now after everything that's changed so much. But in in the fifties, especially, there wasn't very much, and and just to be able to participate with some political. People who were political was a great opportunity, you know, after all that awful 50s stuff. So you were involved in the women's movement. In, uh, was it here in Chicago or in Boston? In Chicago. In Chicago, uh, broadly speaking, right? Uh, but you didn't have any connection with the Jane Collective until you found yourself pregnant, right? No, I did. I know them. Okay. And, I, and I was involved with them to some extent. I'm not... I was I was more ca- not cautious I guess but lazy, and so um, you know I you had to go down to Hyde Park for example to go to a meeting it was a big pain. <laughs> I never go to Hyde Park I totally understand right. that. it's a long ways away. Right. That's where the meetings were in Hyde Park <laughs> or sometimes they were up here but mainly down there, and so it was a big pain and I, and um, I knew them I knew some of them we had been activists of some sort. Before that, I, I don't really remember. I mean, I can point you to some people who might be able to tell you more. So that was that was very exciting to be part of something political at that moment in time. But so what was your thought process when, for example, you found out that you were pregnant? You had already had at least one kid by that point, right? You had two. a child. Two kids. I was pregnant. And you did not want a third married. child, right? Yeah. But it wasn't his. Mm. I don't know. I can't remember whose it was. How did you feel at that time when... So this is before you got divorced. Right. And so you were just challenging multiple levels of male authority at this point. Well, I was acting out, as my mother would say. (laughs) So how did it feel? Scary. Yeah, so can you describe that feeling, that fear? What were you afraid of? That's a good question. I don't know what I was afraid of. Times were different. 
the times were, you know, you, you didn't do that so readily. People didn't sleep around and broadcast it. Although I guess we were all doing the same thing. <laughs> but, but anyway, so it, it, it was different then than it is now. It's hard to get back into that mindset because people were very, very uh, protective of their private lives in those days. And, um, and I was married, and so I would go down to Hyde Park a lot to meetings of this women's group. That's how I knew all these things. I knew that there were there was a guy who came to Chicago every now and then and did about you know he would do the rounds to abort a lot of people. He would. He was a doctor. He said he was, but I don't think so. And um, what do you, you mean? What was his training? What was the extent of his training? We don't know. Um, did, but he used this um, stuff. He would stick it in you, and you would go into labor. You said it was a gel, right? Yeah, something like that. But you knew about this guy before you needed your own abortion? Vaguely. I think I knew that they had somebody who came around, and then when I, you know, I, I got in touch with a friend from the Hyde Park Women's Group, and she got me connected to him. That's how it happened. So I don't remember who it was now, but I think somebody who's still around. And did you discuss this at all with your husband at the time? No, it wasn't his baby. So you, you didn't talk to him about it? No. Hmm. I wasn't a brave person. And, and I was a middle-class woman who didn't have... I, I I I was you know I was scared. It was it w- was different. It wasn't the life I had thought I was going to have. And here I was in the midst of this, you know, well, criminal act. It was a criminal act. And in fact, I worked with the um, with the abortion women, and they were raided. I don't know if you know this. There was yeah the the. Um, um, State's attorneys brought... Hanrahan? Yeah, yes. Was it Hanrahan? The the reason why they didn't go to jail, ultimately, was because the cops used to use this abortionist. I read about that. What do you mean the cops used the abortionist? For their girlfriends. At least that's the story they told. Is that right? You read that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, so, you know. Yeah, and did you know these people who had been raided? Were yes. you involved at this at that time? They didn't raid me, but it scared right, the shit yeah. out of me, boy. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I don't remember how much I told my husband or what I told him. I don't remember that. So, what was the process of you find out that you're pregnant? And you had said first before you called Jane or anything, you had gone to a doctor's office to to ask. Right, about and he said, "Don't come back here." Can you believe that? They were so awful in those days. So it shamed you, or what? What was the conversation? No, I went to him to find out what he could do to help me, and he said, "Don't come back here anymore." So then, uh, New York, I believe, and maybe Washington were the only two states where it was uh, where abortion was legal. What was the other one? I think Washington was the other one. No, the other one, New York. 
Right, New York. Some people went to New York. You had to have a doctor's letter, I believe, okay. or a psychiatrist's letter, okay. or two letters, something like that. So, it was so humiliating. So you had to have the letters ostensibly from the male authority authorizing right. yes. you to oh, I suppose have you could the go abortion. to a woman psychiatrist, but I don't know if there are any around. Yeah, there probably weren't a ton around. <laughs> yeah. right. So that it was a matter of like not getting the permission that made you not go that route, as far as like. Kind going of to New York. Network to go well, to New York. I was frantic, to tell you the truth. Mm. And um, I didn't know what was going to happen or what I was going to do. And I believe I ultimately told my husband and told him it was his. But I, I'm pretty sure I must have done that. And what was his reaction? Do you remember? He was supportive. You know, I, I have to give him credit. He, he was, he, he helped. And um, I felt a little guiltier, but anyway, I took his help. So you went to the doctor's office. You got essentially thrown out of the yeah, doctor's yeah. office for even uh, broaching the subject. Yeah. And so then after that, what was the process of reaching out to the Jane? That's Doctor? hard to remember. Now, I knew I had been part of that group as it formed. This was 1969, I think. Um, and... I was part of the group, so I knew they were, they were, they had a doctor who came in and did abortions. You know, every now and then he would he would do a series of abortions for a day, and so I knew that was happening, and um, and of course I was in a state of you know my nerves were shot. It was just terrible, scary. I, I surely spoke to people um, from the group. Who had and who helped me find somebody to, to? I don't remember what I did, but somebody did it, so that's how I did it. So you you told us that it happened here. We are we are in your kitchen, and you've lived in this house since sixty eight. Sixty eight, yeah. So it was here. It was here, and it was on a kitchen table. The kitchen table was square. The time. It's not this kitchen. It's not this kitchen. No. Okay. But we are still on hallowed ground here. <laughs> that is more or less. That is how yeah. I feel. Yeah. Uh, so, can you describe what happened that day? So, the day of the abortion. That's right. Well, my mother was here. My children were here. I think one child was five and one was seven, and my mother took them next door when the abortionists came to a neighbor's and, house or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, the guy who did it, he, was, uh, he said he was a doctor, but surely he wasn't. And, and he um, put some stuff inside me. Well, first of all, how, how was he? I mean, did he, what was he like as a person? Do you remember? Was he supportive? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just all business? What was it? Well, probably more business than support. And, um, and he was on his way to several others. So it was 150 bucks. And... He wanted to maximize his take, so he he uh, came and went. He was in a hurry. <laughs> so he shot this stuff into me and it put me into labor. It was actually painful, uh, even though I was only six weeks pregnant, mm-hmm. or 10 or 8, I don't remember, something like that. Um, it still felt like labor. So that was, um, you know, and my mother was here with me and... She was, of course, hysterical, and you know, it was kind of funny in a way. 
But so you were you were, had the feeling of going into labor while oh, it was laying definitely here, labor. or you're yeah. going into labor, yeah, and, and with all of the the feeling that that entails here well, in, in the middle of your kitchen. Yeah, right. On the square kitchen table, I was lying out on the square kitchen table, and um, and having these terrible, you know, contractions. They hurt, um, and then. Uh, another, I want to tell you this because it's a horror story. That so, finally, the contractions—they didn't go away, but they became less intense. And uh, I was I was uh, bleeding, and I started hemorrhaging, and I got a little frightened. So I ca- tried calling doctors to get help, and they were—they wouldn't talk to me. And um, one of them said to me, you deserve what you get. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, they were terrible. It was a terrible time for that. So, um, and hung up on me. But And obviously the doctor who had performed the abortion or the non-doctor who performed the abortion yeah. was long gone by yeah, this point. Right. So you're just sort of left to figure all this out on your own. Right. Yeah, that's right. So which was worse, the actual, I mean, because I'm trying to think through... Because the listeners want to know, like, what what should we do if the, if abortion is yeah. yeah. So there's what an they idea. Do is get together and absolutely not allow it to happen. Mm-hmm. But this is just to be clear. This is a very real possibility, right? I mean, today, the day that we're recording this, Donald Trump named his Supreme Court pick, and you know, before he was inaugurated, many times Trump said that whoever he picks to be on the Supreme Court will be a pro life. Justice oh, one did who will he say be, that? Oh, yeah, good. one who will yeah. be dedicated to overturning Roe v. Wade. But oh. then he said, and this is the part that's interesting to me. He said, "Well, it'll just go back to the states," you know, and that was his like rationalization yeah. for it. Yeah. Which means, which to me signaled two things: one, okay, what are the uh, underground abortion networks going to be like after the fact, like after the yeah. And then two, like like you were saying, okay, let's say that it is overturned at the Supreme Court level, then that opens up all 50 states as like fronts for fighting to get a real abortion access. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's like, that's, I, this is kind of fast forwarding a little mm-hmm. bit. We got to get back to the actual story mm-hmm. of what happened. But to me, like access has been really significantly restricted. So even in the years, maybe like two, three, four years after Roe v. Wade hit, you know, you get the Hyde Amendment and you get like bans on funding for research, all yeah, kinds of stuff, yeah, hospital stuff. waivers, you know, stuff that really makes it very difficult for people to have access, especially in places like the South. And you don't have health care in many you cases. You should have heard what they said to me at Evanston Hospital. Yeah. Oh, my God. So wait, did terrible. you go there afterwards? Yeah, I was hemorrhaging. Yeah. And th- th- I couldn't get a doctor to see me. And so I went to the hospital and... Like the ER? I guess so. And they, you know, they said bad things to me, which I don't quite remember anymore. Like, you deserve what you got. You know, really, it was, it was really awful that they would do that. And here I was, you know, I thought, oh, maybe I'm dying, you know. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, it, was, it wasn't the best time of my life. <laughs> so... Yeah. So given that that was the reality, and we could be going back to that, um, how would you think? Yeah. How would you think we would better organize them? 
Well, there has to be um, there has to be groups of women and other supporters who refuse to allow that to happen, who demand that hospitals step up to the plate. Really, I don't know. I, I, it, it, feels, it feels like they're not stepping up to the plate now. No, they're not. You know? what They'd you, rather not. They what don't. do you think? So, what do you think has? Can you describe a bit about, okay, so we have this dramatic story. You have an abortion on your kitchen table. Right. Your kids are next door. Your mom is in the room. You're hemorrhaging. You yeah. think you're going to die. You survived, clearly. Yeah. But what do you think? Then in a couple years, uh, fast forwarding, Roe v. Wade passes, legalized. Then it's kind of rolled back. Like how, what do you think about the state of abortion access now? There are attitudes. I mean, they clearly, they were willing to, here I was laid out on the table, bleeding, worried about whether I was going to live or die, and they're telling me how terrible I am. You know, really? So. That's changed, I guess. Maybe, right? A little bit. Well, in some ways. I mean, in other ways. I mean, the abortion, the anti-abortion movement has been extremely successful, Mm -hmm. right? I mean... On the state-by-state level, we have states like Texas, where Indiana access is almost uh, just almost non-existent with all these rules that range from, you know, the hallway has to be the certain width or whatever, oh, right. just a yeah, pretext to shut the clinic down. Or Indiana, where we have the woman who was... Pervy uh, Patel. Yeah, Pervy Patel, who was jailed for a while. Uh, inducing her own. For inducing her own abortion. Um and then they also have people, uh, you know, I mean, it's, if you are an abortion doctor, you have to be a particularly kind of sort of uh, zealot for women's rights and for abortion access to choose or to become an abortion doctor. Right, but yeah. no amount of money is enough to make up for the fact that you've got people, you like know, George threatening. Tiller. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, and, and that George Tiller is in, a, he's literally in his church when he's shot down. I mean, there's no safe haven from these, yeah, from these people, right? right? So they've, they've succeeded in making a hostile legal and a hostile sort of personal political environment mm-hmm. for uh, anyone who and was reforming abortion. They were very moralizing. Even, you know, even the ones who were doing it were, mm, you're a terrible person. You know? The doctor himself? Or the doctor, the air quotes doctor? Yeah, yeah, the persons who did it. Only the guy who came from Detroit and went and did, you know, 15 of them in one night was not like that. So, so let's go from when you had the abortion. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's pick it up from your bleeding. You try to go to the hospital. Called a lot of doctors. So then what happened? You just I was like, a middle-class person. I didn't just go to the hospital. I called these men to help me. So, yeah, and they told me to, you know, shove it, yes, basically. I started hemorrhaging, and so, yeah, I was bleeding a lot. And then you just, like, waited and then woke well, up the I, next day? I got day. scared. My mother was here. My mother's a nurse, was mm. a nurse. And um, so, you know, I, she got scared. I got scared, so I started calling, and they told me to go. Myself, so you survived the, the procedure and then you get more involved with Jane or what did you do afterwards? It's hard to remember. It was so many years ago. Um, I'm sure I got more involved with them. Uh, I remember 
I remember somebody calling. You know, people used to come on Saturdays and go to an apartment where sometimes a so-called doctor and sometimes one of the women who learned the procedure was there. And um, <clears throat> I forget what, where I was going with this. And so one time the call came from the woman who was up north saying that the police are coming. Mm -hmm. So that was a scary time and we had to get people out of the place where they were. It was just crazy. You know, why would anyone care? You mean why would people who... Why would they go call the police to come and arrest us? It's just crazy. So how did this experience change you? How did you... What did you do after... What did you do with your life You know, I, it was so long ago. Uh, it made me angry, of course, and it made me more involved. But I don't quite remember how, but I'm sure it did make me more involved. And then, you know, it wasn't long after that when they... Uh, Change the law. Maybe I had a small piece of changing it, but it was it was nutty. Well, speak more to that about how you know, how things like Jane led to the law being changed about abortion. Well, they arrested, you know, they they went and arrested about five or six people who were working for the service, and then that was the Women's Liberation Service. It was. The women's abortion service—I forget what they called themselves—but mm -hmm. it was from the women's liberation group, and they um, they went after these women. And right at the same time, things changed. They changed the law, or something happened that it wasn't an issue anymore. Right at the moment when people were about to go to jail, it just turned. Uh, last question I have is. You know, a lot of people are looking, like we said, looking to the experience you had and looking to the leadership you, you showed along with the other people in the group to try to figure out what to do next. And you said um, that we should organize to try to stop these things from, from being implemented, like stop the bans mm -hmm. from being implemented. But in, the case, in, in case that doesn't happen and bans are imposed, uh, how... What words of advice do you have to people who want to... You have to go and do it. You have to break the law. That's, that's what they did. You know, that's what you did. Well, I, but I just was a cog in the wheel, but I, I wasn't a leader. I think, I, I think getting an abortion, that's, actually taking the choice to do that on your no kitchen choice. table... I had no choice. You could have had the, you could have done it. You could have gone through with the pregnancy. Yeah, plenty of women in Did that, that era and today Go are, find out they're pregnant and are, you know, oh, I can't believe I'm pregnant, but they just go through with it and they do it anyway and You perhaps... made a serious that's leadership to me. I don't I don't think like I couldn't consider going through with the pregnancy. I just couldn't. First of all, it was it was from some I don't even remember whose it was now. Isn't that terrible? No. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I was still married, so I felt bad for my husband. He didn't do anything wrong. I think it's still, I think in that time, in that moment of crisis, it, it took some real guts, I think. You said that you were not, uh, you, were, you were not courageous and whatnot. 
I don't think that's true. I, I <laughs> can't imagine. I mean, I can't have an abortion because I'm a man. But I, I still can't wrap my head around like deciding to do have this procedure done on my kitchen well, table. That was... I mean, that sounds completely terrifying to me. Yeah, and it was terrifying. Yeah, but but I and he stayed no involved. Huh? But not only did you use the service, but you stayed involved in the in the politics. Oh, sure. Of it. Once you see what happens, of course you would. Yeah. yeah. But your point is that rather than this being a kind of act of will on your part, is more terrible. The, 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 this was the situation you found yourself in, and it was the only choice. And that, assumedly, when let's say Trump's uh, Supreme Court nominee tips the court so that they can overturn Roe v. Wade, mm-hmm. other women will not necessarily be. Uh, I mean, we can say that they're heroic, but they won't think of themselves as heroes. They'll just think of themselves as having no other options but to turn to some kind of something like a Jane or no, whatever springs th- up. I think what will happen is that the history of it will surface and people will move on from there. Absolutely. And take lessons from it. Yeah, and learn from it and, and act and not be victims. Mm-hmm. We were more victims. And and figuring out how to, what to do and how to do it was part of learning you know, part of changing it. Well, we hope that in recording this podcast and sharing this history (laughs) that we can play. Well, we hope that in sharing that history for the Yes, letting letting younger women know what what happened if they don't already. So thank you, Judy, very much for taking the time to talk with us. You're so professional. So that's quite a story from Judy. Uh, kind of amazing that we got to sit right there in her kitchen, in the same kitchen where she had the abortion in 1969. It's sobering, I guess. I mean, here she was, this woman who uh, was educated, upper middle class person who lived in what is now and what was then considered a fairly liberal suburb outside of a major urban area and uh, totally shut off from abortion access and when she went to seek out medical professionals about it people are calling her a slut people are kicking them kicking her out of their office uh it's just wild stuff to hear it really she was really modest about it about like making the decision to access this network and to go through with the procedure but really you know i think it was a heroic choice and for many reasons that had to do with like the time that you've described as far as the pressure that she was under in that moment. But also there are people who to this day don't feel comfortable talking about getting abortions, you know, and don't feel comfortable getting the procedure. And so the fact that she did it under those circumstances and then participated in a, what I consider to be revolutionary collective to organize other people to uh, have access to the service is a huge deal. And I think um, we have to start thinking about social reproduction, as a friend reminded me recently. Uh, we have to think about social reproduction, these other spheres of struggle, and, and, and understand that we can make moves, we can push the, push the struggle forward in these spheres, and that it's not completely dependent on elites in the Supreme Court or Hillary Clinton or whomever to actually secure access for people. And we've got to do that. And so the the rolling back is obviously bad. But if we're actually going to prevail, we need wide wide support and organization. 
And she's, that's pretty much the big takeaway that she said was that we have to organize and take the stories that they had and do better. Right. Even she, more. she was modest about her contribution to all of this and, and what she did, but she did say at the end, the actions of people like her were what led to the law being changed eventually, that that people were being, you know, raided and that there was this, uh, you know, heavy uh, atmosphere of repression against women who had chosen to get abortions and and the people who were providing them, uh, but that that played the role, played a key role in making abortion legal eventually. Um, and so that's, as you said, the key lesson for whatever we're going to have to do going forward. And I'm optimistic in a sense. I'm optimistic because I think that access has been denied to so many people that we actually have an opportunity if we organize for real to be in a better position following the rollback than we are now, in which by namely by attaching abortion access to the struggle for universal health care. Because if you don't even have health care in general, it's very it's very difficult to have access to reproductive health. And so these issues are the same and there can be no abortion access, meaningful abortion access for the masses without also having universal health care. And I don't I want to see us really tie these struggles together and really make a move forward to uh, put people in a better position than they were even than they are, even when abortion is, quote unquote, legal. So that's it. The end of our first episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked what you heard here, you can, of course, subscribe on iTunes, rate us and review us, tell your friends, write a tweet, whatever. We want to actually hear from the audience, too. So any questions that you have about about this or any articles that you found about the Jane Collective, uh, tweet at us. I'm RL is dead. I'm not even, should I even try to spell my name? It's a long, messed up name. <laughs> M-I-C-A-H-U-E-T-R-I-C-H-T. I'm cursed with a rough first and last name. Also, That's white people problems. <laughs> for real talk. Uh, also, any ideas for future shows like this? I mean, uh, I love talking to people who write articles or write books, but if you have ideas for sh- shows that are like the story that you heard from uh, Judy, uh, people who have been involved in real struggles and, and who have interesting things to say about them, do let us know and offer us any uh, suggestions. For sure. And thanks to Judy, uh, by the way, for uh, being willing to talk to us uh, about her experience. Uh, it's incredible that we got to spend that time with her. Living and- history. And this podcast, if I were to just sum it up in one line, um, left game interracial buddy cop movie. <laughs> So, where else are you going to be getting a leftist interracial buddy cop movie but right here? Actually, it's called Lefting Lethal Weapon. That's the name of the podcast, son. I just, that's it. Lefting Lethal Weapon. I'm Danny Glover. Does that make me Mel Gibson? (laughs) You're racist. You're Mel Gibson. We can't do this anymore. It's over. Well, thank you for listening to the one and only uh, episode of this podcast.